Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and I love all things tech. And we have made it, you and I, together. We have crawled through the history of Netflix and we are in the final, for now at least, chapter of that history. Where really I'm looking at the formative experiences and years of Netflix, uh, when we get past a certain point, we'll be doing a lot of skipping forward because uh, it ends up being sort of the the story of they did more of what they just did, but with more money. That tends to be the theme of the last few years. However, in the last episode on the history of Netflix, I gave a rundown of how Blockbuster had a fighting chance to catch up to Netflix's model of online DVD rental after lagging behind, and they had introduced a feature called Total Access. But the new CEO of Blockbuster, the incoming CEO, changed the direction of the company to focus back on traditional brick-and-mortar stores, and as a result, Total Access was discontinued. 
in that vacuum, Netflix was able to flourish in that online DVD rental space. They no longer had a major competitor. The closest was Redbox, which was on the rise, but they had a totally different approach to DVD rentals, and they were at least initially targeting a different demographic. So that wasn't as big of a concern, at least initially. So Netflix was really able to kind of grow without having to worry about an opponent taking them down. Now, to start this episode, we're actually going to backtrack just a little bit. In that last episode, I got up to 2008. But for this part, to talk about the streaming side of Netflix's business, because the last time it was mostly about the DVD side, we have to go back a little bit to 2006, because it was September 2006 when Amazon launched a service it originally called Amazon Unbox. That was the name of a digital video download service. You could purchase movies and TV shows off Amazon and then download them to a device to watch. That would later evolve into Amazon Instant Video, and then Amazon would eventually transition away from offering video downloads and then focus instead on delivering streaming video. So you would be able to watch that content. It would remain in your library if you, if you actually purchased it as opposed to rented it. And you could watch it whenever you wanted as long as you were logged into your Amazon account. But the video would quote-unquote live on Amazon's servers. You wouldn't download it to your machine. Early on, this was not a direct competitor to Netflix's streaming video service. Because again, this was more of a download, a purchase pr uh, process. And Netflix had already gotten out of that market in 2005. However, it would become a major competitor later on. And then on March 22nd, 2007, another competitor rose up. That's when NBC Universal and News Corp held a joint announcement for a new online service that they were going to call Hulu. The service would not go into beta testing until the fall of 2007. So this was a preliminary announcement. And the official debut of the website to the general public happened almost a year later, in March of 2008, this was a big deal for Netflix and its streaming strategy. It was a, a, a real alternative to what Netflix was doing. Now, for one thing, the reason why this was a big deal and a potential threat is that Netflix is an independent company. It is not part of a larger conglomerate that owns content studios. Hulu, however, represented a joint venture between lots of different partners, including NBC Universal, which includes both NBC, the broadcast company, and Universal Studios, and also News Corp, which includes the companies Fox Broadcasting and 20th Century Fox. Hulu would have a huge advantage in that the companies that were making the content were also responsible for bringing to life this delivery system. So it was not a big stretch to guess that those companies would favor sending their content to Hulu rather than to Netflix and that they would leverage this to make an advantage and take away some of Netflix's power. Well, complicating matters was that Disney Studios, through its subsidiary, ABC, would announce that it was going to take a stake in ownership of Hulu in 2009. And while News Corporation would transfer its stake to 21st Century Fox, the fact Disney then moved to acquire 21st Century meant that the major players were pretty much the same. Um, some of the ownership was switching, but it wasn't like a lot of new players were coming in. 
Uh, also, Comcast would announce an intention to acquire a majority stake in NBC Universal in December 2009, which might have seemed like all the these big major players in creating movies and television were starting to align against Netflix and Netflix's plan for streaming uh, content. Other partners in the venture, at least initially, would include AOL, Facebook, MySpace, which was still a thing back in 2007, and Yahoo, which you could argue was also still a thing in 2007. Fun side fact, Hulu.com had actually existed since 1999 as a website, but it wasn't associated with streaming video. So what was going on? Originally, Hulu.com belonged to a woman named Amy Hung, who used it as a personal blog site. NBC would purchase this site sometime in 2007, and it was Hung who had said that the name Hulu was uh, her reference to a Chinese word for gourd, and that people in China would hollow out these kinds of gourds in order to store precious things inside them. So it was a container for precious things. When the Hulu.com streaming site launched and allowed people to sign up in October 2007, it included that definition. It was actually an expanded version of the definition. And uh, it reads verbatim, here we go, quote, In Mandarin, Hulu has two interesting meanings, each highly relevant to our mission. The primary meaning interested us because it is used in an ancient Chinese proverb that describes the Hulu as the holder of precious things. It literally translates to gourd, and in ancient times, the Hulu was hollowed out and used to hold precious things. The secondary meaning is interactive recording. We saw both definitions as appropriate bookends and highly relevant to the mission of Hulu. End quote. When Hulu launched, it worked in a fundamentally different way from Netflix. So Netflix would offer a digital distribution through a subscription service, and originally it was an add-on to DVD rentals. It didn't exist as its own uh, individual offering for at least not at first. Hulu did not up offer up a subscription service initially. Uh, on Netflix, you could watch films and TV shows commercial-free. On Hulu the videos were ad-supported. So you would get one or two commercials either before, sometimes inserted into the middle of the content you were watching. Netflix would offer up entire seasons of shows for whatever available titles it had, although they tended to be older shows or they were older seasons of shows, not the most recent ones. Sometimes it might be not be the, the most recent two or three seasons. Hulu offered up several recent episodes of currently airing shows. So usually it was five. You get the five most recent episodes. And then sporadically, you might get access to earlier seasons of those shows. Uh, as new shows would debut, new episodes would debut on television, about mm, a few days, maybe a week later, they would find their way to Hulu, and they would knock off the oldest of the most recent five episodes off the list. So once you got to episode six of a new show, I think it's just airing that year, then when episode six would move over to Hulu, it would knock off episode one. And then you would just have episodes two through six to view. So if you did not keep up with it, you would eventually lose the ability to watch those earlier episodes until maybe much later when an entire completed season would join Hulu. So... Hulu would later introduce a subscription service 
which was also ad-supported, which got a lot of people upset. They thought, if I'm paying a subscription, why am I also forced to watch commercials? But that would increase the number of pieces of content viewers could access. The the more recent episodes wouldn't drop off necessarily. You might be able to stick with a, a, a show all the way through a season and be able to watch those earlier episodes. And later still, it would eliminate that free service entirely. And the only way to view Hulu content would be to become a subscriber. Now, all of that is to say that Netflix's future in digital delivery was not certain. The DVD rental business would eventually decline as the format itself would fall out of favor with more customers shifting to digital alternatives. That writing was on the wall. Everyone could tell that sooner or later, this physical medium is going to reach a level where it is no longer profitable to operate this rental business. There will still be devotees of the medium. There's still going to be people who prefer DVDs and Blu-rays to uh, streaming media. That makes sense. But there may not be enough of them to support a business. The debut of the Blu-ray and the HD DVD formats in the mid-2000s shifted things a bit. It, It extended the life of physical media. Uh, Netflix actually would carry both Blu-ray and HD DVD until Netflix, like everybody else, realized that Blu-ray was going to win out over HD DVD. The uh, company would dump the HD DVD format in early 2008, as did everybody else. So where did the company go from there? Well, first, it started a transition to the cloud. In 2008, Netflix's servers encountered a massive database corruption problem, and that messed up Netflix's ability to track and send out DVDs to customers. Operations had to be suspended for three days while Netflix engineers frantically tried to fix the problem. That whole mess decided or or led Netflix's executives to decide that the best thing to do is to shift away from operating their own data centers and instead move to a really reliable cloud-based service. And the one they picked was run by Amazon, Amazon Web Services. That process of transitioning from their own data centers to Amazon Web Service would take uh, several years to complete. It started in 2008. It really didn't finish till about 2016. So this was not a quick process. It takes a while to migrate systems and uh, do so in a way where you don't interrupt services. Netflix also signed content licensing deals with various studios, sometimes at a bargain price. Many executives were skeptical that online video would be able to survive, which might have contributed to some negotiations in Netflix's favor. So Netflix landed a distribution deal with the premium channel Stars, for example, to carry a lot of the movie titles that Stars had the rights to. And the agreement was for $25 million for two years, which is a lot of money, but it's actually not unreasonable for one of these licensing deals, especially if you compare it to something like the $800 million deal Netflix signed with Lionsgate, MGM, and Paramount for a five-year licensing agreement. That deal prompted everyone from directors to actors to producers to also get involved in this process because... They had a direct interest in this. They wanted to know, how are we going to get compensated for our work being displayed over this new medium? What what are the rules here? Because if I get residuals, how is that determined through this online service? It, it was a chaotic, messy time. Another thing that could have worked and may have worked in Netflix's favor 
is that at that time, the big studios were looking at it as if it were a small cable distributor rather than a nationwide entity. They weren't, they were kind of underestimating Netflix, in other words. But that changed as the subscriber base for Netflix would grow each year. And by 2010, Netflix had nearly as many subscribers as the cable company Comcast did. And by then, Netflix had landed several multi-year licensing agreements. And at that point, the studios said, "Uh uh-oh, we may have contributed to the growth of a real giant. And now they have clout. They have subscribers. And if we end up not coming to terms with them, and then the company turns to their customers and says, says, we would love to bring you X movie, but because the studio refuses to license their work to us, you aren't going to get it, then people might turn against that studio. And by this time, by the time they made that realization, it was kind of too late. Well, I've got a lot more to say about Netflix, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. 
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, around this time, there was also a culture shift that was starting to happen, and one we still talk about today. And this was the growth of the cord cutters and the emergence of the cord nevers. These are populations that represent people who ended their television service, their pay TV service, whether it was cable or satellite, or they never bothered to sign up for one in the first place. Some of them would still watch television programming, but they did it through things like over-the-air antennas. So they're not paying for the content. They're just getting whatever is being broadcast over the air. Or they were getting it through digital streaming on a computer or enabled set-top box. So they were getting it delivered through the internet, but not through the traditional satellite or cable systems. The growth in cable subscribers began to slack off. And occasionally, they would actually decline in the number of subscribers, not just slow growth but see reverse growth. They'd see people leaving these subscription services. The trend seemed to validate the Netflix corporate strategy. Another battle Netflix had to wage was directly related to the popularity of the company's streaming service, as more customers began to use Netflix to not only rent DVDs, but also stream movies online. The percentage of traffic on the internet related to Netflix grew. Netflix was the source for 60% of all the streaming movies online. All the other services combined would make up the other 40%. And according to several analysts, Netflix traffic accounted for 20% of all broadband traffic in the United States. Now, this was something companies like Comcast didn't care for very much. For the most part, companies that owned infrastructure on the internet as in like the actual series of tubes, if you prefer, they had an understanding. The, they would have these agreements in place. And the agreement said, all right, I will carry data that's coming from your side of the internet if you in turn carry data that's coming from my side of the internet. And as long as it matches up with the uh, amounts that we have agreed to, no one charges anyone any fees. And if it goes beyond that, then we start talking about metering that data, because I'm going to be carrying more of your stuff than you're carrying of mine. I need to be compensated for that. So this is called peering agreements. It's a foundational part of the internet. And uh, it's also one of the uh, basic concepts of net neutrality, this idea that these peering agreements are what allow massive amounts of data to pass across the internet without getting throttled or uh, having surcharges put on top of them. And in 2010, that concept was put to the test and continues to be to this day. The major players in this matter at the time were Netflix, Comcast, and a company called Level 3 Communications. Now, Netflix I know you guys know because 
I've been talking about them for three episodes before this. And if you have not listened to those, it's odd that you would listen to a part four first. Go back and listen to parts one through three. Comcast is a cable company and internet service provider in the United States, but you may not know what level three communications is. Uh, A lot of you probably do know because you're really tech savvy, but some of you might not. You might be like me, and it might be one of those things that you understood later. Well, Level 3 Communications is one of the companies that owns and operates the infrastructure that we call the backbone of the internet. They own parts of the internet connections that other traffic will travel across as it goes from one network to a network. Because remember, the internet is a network of networks. So Comcast's network, which connects customers to the rest of the internet, this backbone we're talking about, will send traffic across the backbone and receives traffic coming from the backbone and then sends that on to its customers. One way content companies are able to deliver content to users no matter where those users might be within the service area is to build out what is called a content delivery network. This is a system of servers that a company distributes in various regions. And when customers access the online service, they connect to the server best suited to give them the fastest response. So if you've played online video games, you're probably familiar with logging into a specific server. Those servers are typically organized via region. And generally speaking, if you log into a server that's closest to you, to wherever you happen to be geographically, You tend to have things like uh, the fastest response time, less lag, things that are really important if you're playing a game. Those same things are really important if you want to watch high-quality streaming video. You want there to be as little delay as possible. Customers hate it when they have to sit there and watch a buffering logo show up and they wait to see their video content. That's not a good experience. So Netflix would do this. They would use these content delivery networks in order to make sure that customers would get a good experience when viewing films and TV shows online. Before Netflix reached an agreement with Level 3 Communications to have Level 3 take on this task for them, a different CDN company called Akamai did that job, A-K-A-M-A-I. So in in this agreement, Comcast would actually charge Akamai to deliver traffic to Comcast's network. And Akamai did not own internet infrastructure. It was able to set up these content delivery networks, but it was not a peer in the traditional sense of the peering agreements. So that's why Comcast could charge Akamai for this. It wasn't like it was this mutual relationship where Comcast would send data across servers belonging to Akamai and vice versa. It was a one-way relationship, which meant that Comcast was metering it. It was charging Akamai. Well, then Netflix switches over to Level 3 Communications. They take over Netflix's delivery, and things changed because Level 3 is a peer and had an existing peering agreement in place with Comcast. Now, the agreement would actually allow Level 3 to send twice as much data to Comcast as Comcast could send to Level 3. So it was a two-to-one relationship. So if Comcast can send 100 units then Level 3 could send 200 units back, and it was considered to be even. Uh, In the eyes of the agreement, that means that twice as much traffic ends up being equal traffic. But Comcast argued that this Netflix deal would mean that Level 3 would start sending five times as much traffic to Comcast, and that would exceed this peering agreement. 
So Comcast also wanted to charge Level 3 the same way it had been charging Akamai for sending this Netflix content to Comcast's network, because otherwise it was going to get cut out of that revenue. That was part of the uh, you know Comcast revenue plan. Level 3 argued that Comcast was trying to wriggle out of net neutrality, and Comcast argued that Level 3 was inappropriately claiming that this was a net neutrality issue when in reality it was a peering issue. And I'm not a big supporter of Comcast, but I do feel like the company had a bit of a leg to stand on in this particular argument. If the peering agreement was for a certain amount of traffic and Level 3 was going to exceed that, then... By my estimation, Level 3 should have been expected to pay a metered rate. And it didn't matter where the data came from. It wasn't that specifically it came from Netflix. It was that the amount of data was exceeding the agreement. Whether that came from Netflix or from a spreadsheet doesn't really matter. But that would also mean Level 3 would likely have to pass those expenses on to Netflix, which would then, of course, pass those expenses on to customers. And that would have been a pretty negative experience all around. The fight would stretch for years with worries that Comcast would end up throttling Netflix traffic, not because it was Netflix necessarily, though that service did compete with Comcast's own internet video delivery services that it provided to its customers, but rather because Level 3 would be in violation of that agreement. Netflix ended up extricating itself out of this problem in 2014, And that's when it was announced that it was going to pay Comcast for a direct connection from Netflix servers to Comcast's network. So they were no longer employing anyone else to become a content delivery network. They were essentially doing it themselves and paying Comcast for the privilege. But the bigger dispute reached something of a resolution in 2015, just a short time before the FCC was to start hearing complaints under some new net neutrality rules, rules which, I should add, have since been overturned by the most recent FCC leadership. So the mess keeps on going. Meanwhile, on the executive side over at Netflix, Reed Hastings was apparently becoming less approachable. According to the book Netflix, which I have cited several times in these episodes, it was getting harder to change Hastings' mind about things. He would make up his mind on something, and challenging his ideas was becoming more and more difficult to do. Some of his top executives would leave around this time. They saw very little opportunity to grow at Netflix. They saw a little indication that they would have a shot at leading the company themselves and figured that they pretty much achieved their goals that they set out to to do when they joined Netflix. Things like fighting off Blockbuster or launching a digital video uh, service those things had happened already. So rather than just sit around, they decided to leave and take on new challenges or even retire. On November 22nd, 2010, Netflix really showed off how it believed the streaming service was going to be the future because for the first time, they would offer customers the option to subscribe to just the streaming part of Netflix's service without the requirement of having a DVD rental service on top of it. Because up to that point, it was an add-on. There was no just streaming uh, option for the subscription. But in 2010, suddenly there was. This new service would cost $7.99 per month when it launched, and the combined plan of unlimited DVDs and streaming went from $8.99 a month to $9.99 a month at that point. Hastings even said at the uh, press release that Netflix was now, quote, primarily a streaming video company delivering a wide selection of TV shows and films over the internet, end quote. 
Netflix finally began to expand its streaming services internationally. First, they began to offer service in Canada and then later in Latin America and the Caribbean in late 2011. And that was also when Netflix announced what would be the beginning of its next serious move in changing the landscape of entertainment. The company announced it would be the exclusive distributor in the United States of a television series called Lilyhammer, which originated out of Norway. And perhaps more importantly, they also announced that they were developing their own original program. Netflix was playing the part of a TV studio. They were actually producing a show, not just streaming a show. And the first original program was an adaptation of a TV series that had been on UK television in the 1990s. That adaptation would change the time and place of the story, switching from the... Uh, the the days of uh, the 90s over in the UK to modern-day United States, and this series was called House of Cards. But while new original content from Netflix was exciting, that wasn't the 2011 story that got customers talking and shouting and leaving nasty comments and canceling their subscriptions. Nope, that honor would go to a little scandal or... Kerfuffle, I guess, is a better word, called Quickster. I'll explain after we take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso... I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. 
conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, 
I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. So, Quickster. Well, here's the down and dirty details. Netflix's business was in two really big categories. In one was the DVD rental business that was getting more expensive to operate. Postage fees had gone up. Blu-rays were more expensive than DVDs. And so it was getting harder to make that a cost-efficient, profitable business. Meanwhile, there was the streaming services side of the business. And that was clearly the future for Netflix. That was where things were going to ultimately end up. But the DVD format and Blu-rays hadn't died. There were still a lot of people who preferred the experience of watching movies on that physical media. And there were titles in Netflix's DVD library that you could not find in the streaming library due to licensing issues. So Netflix could go out and buy copies of a movie and then offer them up for rent, but they couldn't take necessarily those exact same titles and put them up for streaming because it went. It was the difference between renting a physical format and broadcasting content. Because of that, you would always find a much more broad and deep uh, selection of television shows and films in the DVD side than you would in the streaming side. So it didn't seem feasible to just kill the DVD side of the business entirely, but it was getting more challenging to operate both sides of the business simultaneously. Netflix had also raised the prices of its joint DVD and streaming plans to $16 a month at uh, that point, and that was a heck of a jump, and this was in a recession. The decision would affect half of Netflix's subscribers in the United States, who were under this joint plan. So about 50% of all Netflix customers had both DVD and streaming subscriptions tied together. But people who subscribed only to DVDs or only subscribed to the streaming service, they would have actually seen a price cut in this approach. However, the focus of this announcement was almost exclusively on the price jump for the people who had a joint account, like the the joint DVD and streaming services. And because of that, Netflix was getting a lot of bad press and customer complaints. So there was a new idea, one that a lot of people inside Netflix did not like, but Reed Hastings was very gung-ho on going forward with this idea. And that idea was to split the two businesses apart and make the DVD side of Netflix its own company and calling it Quickster. It would have its own internal corporate structure. It would have its own CEO. It would be free from the streaming business of Netflix. 
But that also meant it would be a huge change to customers. It meant that the combined plan of DVDs and streaming would become more complicated. Each company would have to maintain its own queues and customer profiles. So if you wanted to have that that joint service of DVDs and streaming video, now you were going to have to have two accounts. You're going to have a Netflix account and a Quickster account. You have two subscriptions, two payments, two different queues. Uh, If you were, let's say that you had a, a queue in your streaming service and you had a queue in the DVD service and it turns out one of the movies that's on your DVD list becomes available on streaming and you watch it in streaming and then your next DVD shows up and it happens to be the same movie, that would be a really frustrating experience, especially since it had originally both come from the same company. People were not happy. Netflix also was not very good at communicating why it was doing this in the first place. And the main reason was to allow the DVD side to focus on delivering rentals with a deep library and do it efficiently and and with a profit in mind, while the streaming side could dedicate more resources like time, energy, and effort to building out its library and making new content. Most coverage at the time criticized how Hastings communicated these changes. He actually did it by shooting a short video that the company had produced independently uh, against the wishes of a lot of the folks in his executive team. He did this. And it became another notch in the argument that Reed Hastings was just not very good at communicating with his customers or understanding where his customers were coming from. He would eventually reverse this decision and he would bring the DVD business back under Netflix and uh, and just abandon the idea of Quickster. And that took about a month. Uh, they had not yet really spun out Quickster. They had announced the intention to do this, but they ultimately decided that that wasn't going to work after they got a massive negative reaction from customers. And a lot of people lost their jobs in the process because in the preparations for making this move, there were people who were brought on or transitioned over to new roles. They were going to fill new positions under Quickster. But now Quickster was gone. Those positions were gone. And so people found themselves out of a job. They had, they had switched over and they didn't have a job to go back to over at Netflix. So it was a really big misstep for Netflix and for Hastings. But the company was able to recover. It expanded in 2012 by launching services in Europe. And in April 2012, Hastings and Netflix would fund a political action committee, or PAC, called FlixPAC. And this is a lobbying group. It contributes money to the campaigns of politicians who would support legislation that was in favor of net neutrality, for example, or that they would vote against any legislation that would pose a threat to Netflix's business. So Netflix became a real political entity at this point. On December 24th, 2012, Netflix went dark in North America and not on purpose. So this is Christmas Eve, 2012. The streaming service went offline for several hours, and the root of the problem was with the Elastic Load Balancer service on Amazon's cloud platform. So there was really nothing Netflix could do at this point. There was an error uh, on the Amazon cloud service, and this was when Netflix was still in the process of transitioning over to Amazon's platform. In August 2013, Netflix introduced a concept it had previously implemented in its DVD rental business, which was Profiles. Uh, With profiles, a household could have multiple cues to represent the preferences of each member of the family. So dad could have one cue of content, mom could have another, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in 2015, 
the company announced an incredible seven to one stock split. That meant that for every share of stock in Netflix you owned, you would get six additional shares. The share price would reduce down to one-seventh of their former value. And I talked about this in an earlier episode, but really quickly, this approach increases the number of shares, but it decreases the price per share. That maintains the same company value throughout the process. But it's also a way to encourage small investors to get on board because the price for an individual share of stock is lower than it was before. Netflix also would launch streaming services in Japan in 2015, and in 2016 at CES, Netflix announced it would enter 130 new markets across the world, so it was really growing quickly. Last year, that being 2017 at the time of this recording, the research firm PwC sent out a survey to learn more about how people were getting their entertainment. And according to their survey results, 73% of respondents said that they were pay TV customers. So cable or satellite or something like that. 73% of respondents said they subscribed to Netflix. So the same number of people, not necessarily exactly the same people, but the same number of people were now Netflix customers as they were for any sort of pay TV customers. So this survey suggests that the U.S. means that Streaming is really the direction that we're moving in. If we've gotten to a point where there's an equal number of people subscribed to Netflix as there are for any given pay TV service or all of them collected together, that's pretty big news. Meanwhile, there are these other competing services out there. You've got Hulu, Amazon Video. You've got the upcoming Disney streaming service. Those are all muddying the waters and making things more complicated. No service can boast having all of another service's offerings plus more. So in other words, you're not going to go to Hulu and see, oh, you have everything Netflix has plus this other stuff. Or you go to Netflix and say, oh, you've got everything Amazon Video has plus this other stuff. No one has everything. So it's quite possible that if you want to see certain programming, you're going to have to subscribe to multiple services. That, you know, you, you might say, oh, I really want that show and I really want this other show. And unfortunately, they're both exclusive to different services. Well, you have a little option but to subscribe to both of those services. And this is getting pretty messy. As we're seeing more of these services pop up, it requires more decisions on the part of the customer. And a lot of people aren't really thrilled about the idea of having to sign up to multiple services. Uh, so... That is becoming a bit of a complication. And then you also have premium channels like HBO having their own competing services. So while there may be a desire to cut the cord, the alternative seems to be that you're going to have to subscribe to two or more services to get what you want, unless you just happen to accept that the limited options of any one service are exactly what you need. Netflix is also really big on original programming. There's no surprise there. They don't have to pay licensing fees. And it gives them an advantage over competing services. So according to IndieWire, which cited an unnamed source, Netflix is releasing around 82 original movies in 2018 and 700 new or exclusively licensed programs. The content budget for Netflix is an estimated $13 billion in 2018. And some of that original programming gets both critical acclaim as well as an eager reception from Netflix customers. In 2017, the company garnered 91 Emmy nominations from its original programming. 
as well as eight Academy Award nominations for their original films, and even won an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature with Icarus. So not everything on Netflix is Fuller House. Thank goodness. And it looks like in the near future, Netflix is going to focus on sports docu-series as another area to expand in. So the company continues to pour money into original programming and to uh, add more to its features. It grows in more uh, regions, so it's, it's opening up more streaming services across the world. And I expect it will continue to be a pretty major player in entertainment for at least the near future. When will we see DVD rentals go away? Who's to say? I think it's going to be a while. Reed Hastings actually joked that he would make sure he would personally deliver the very last DVD that they ever rent, and that it would probably be sometime in 2030. Whether or not that prediction remains accurate, that's we're going to have to wait around and see. But that wraps up the story of Netflix so far. Obviously, the company continues to exist, so I'll probably have to do more episodes either specifically about Netflix or related to it in the future. But I think we've talked about it enough with four episodes back-to-back, right? So we're going to come back in our next episode about a totally different topic, and I look forward to chatting with you guys then. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, maybe it's a company or a technology or a person in tech, uh, maybe there's someone I should interview. Send me a message. Let me know. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Go check out our merchandise over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's tee.public.com slash techstuff. Every purchase goes to help the show. And we greatly appreciate it. And don't forget, follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. 
Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.